0: Today, I want to talk to you about your Jesus story. You know, all of us have family stories, don't we? You've got family stories or stories from the past, and uh, you can tell those pretty easily. I remember when our kids were young, and uh, they were home, and they were probably in early grade school and younger, and I got my first car with keyless entry. Do you remember those days? I don't know if some of you remember, but you used to actually have to take a key and stick it in the, the door to open the, the door, oh, see it in the lock to open the door. And I got my first keyless entry car. I thought it was amazing. I got home, it was dark, and I got the kids out there in the driveway. I said, look, Dad got this car. And I said, look, here's the thing. They've got this new technology. All you have to do is nod your head. And the doors open and the lights go on inside. Uh, you try it. And I was bam, it opened. It was incredible. It was incredible. Of course, I was clicking the thing behind me all the time with that. And then I said, and you know, you, you can either nod your head or you can hit this button right here. And they thought that was amazing. So they went in and they told their mom, mom, dad got a new car. You can either nod your head or click the button and the doors open. I love to mess with them just a little bit. Family stories though they remind us of influence and relationship don't they we got our first basketball goal and uh, I was going to give it to the kids for Christmas and uh, to gently tell the boys they were going to be basketball players you know um, this is what you're going to do in life and I I got the pole and I had to get it set way before Christmas right because I wanted it to be up on Christmas day but I didn't want to you know display it so I I I I took some cement and I cemented the pole in place and I I may have let my son believe it was a light pole. May have. And then on Christmas I showed him and he said, Look, dad put a basket on the light pole. There were great kids, they were great times. And my dad gave us a lot of great memories as well. And I remember as a kid he would take us up and we'd play ball, you know, and um, whether it was baseball or football or whatever invariably, one of us would get hit in the face with a ball, right? You've had this experience, and they're rolling around on the ground, and they're screaming, and Dad is caring for them. But once we stopped screaming, he would usually say something like this, you know, it'll feel better when it stops hurting. I'm so grateful for him. One time when I uh, had moved away for the summer, and I was working in the oil field, in a land called Oklahoma. Anybody know where that is? East Coasters, we don't know about that part of the country, but uh, I was working in Oklahoma, and um, I was kind of homesick. It was my first summer to be far from home, and uh, I came home from work one day. I pulled in in my piece of junk, 60 Chevy, and to this crummy apartment that was on top of the TV shop in this little bitty town in Oklahoma, starting to feel a little pathetic. I look across the street, and there's my dad. He showed up. Like 800 miles from home. He just showed up on the street where I lived. He came to see me. And he came to take me home for the weekend. And flew me back the next, the next few days later. That was the kind of a guy he was. That was one of, my, it's one of my favorite family stories. Of dad showing up and coming through. And that just spoke so much about our relationship and the influence he had in my life. You know, family stories are easy to tell, aren't they? I could point to any one of you, and you could stand up and tell a family story. Maybe not in front of this crowd, because you might get nervous. But among one or two people, you tell family stories, don't you? Is your Jesus story the same way? Can you tell your Jesus story as good as you can tell a family story? Because if something real happened to you, if Jesus Christ confronted you and you had an encounter with him, you would think that would be a story that you could easily tell. This morning, we're going to talk through the Apostle Paul's longest testimony of his own life and most detailed and talk about how he told his story at a very important moment. Because we need to be able to tell our story we need to be able to tell it well. Because you know what? The world needs to hear your story. They need to hear what Jesus did in your life. Now, I know when we start talking about telling our story, sometimes people get a little nervous, and they start wondering how far the exit is from where they're sitting. So want you to know we've locked the doors. No, we haven't. Don't get nervous. We just want to hear... We just want you to be able to articulate what Jesus has done. And if you're not sure what Jesus has done, I'm hoping by the end of our time together, you'll be sure. And if you're still not, I would love to chat with you after we're done so that you can tell your Jesus story. So let's look at Acts chapter 26. We're going to begin in verse 4, and let me set the context. Let me summarize a few verses before this. You know the story, where we've been. The Apostle Paul has come back to Jerusalem He got, the Jews basically wanted to kill him. He was rescued by the Romans. Paul went on trial three times as the Jews accused him of stuff they couldn't prove. They didn't like Paul because Paul did what? He said that Jesus Christ was the way to be forgiven and to be right with God. And that it wasn't your good works. It wasn't all the good things you can do. And so, eventually, Paul winds up before a man named Felix, who's the governor of the area. And that doesn't go so great. And he's trying, Felix is trying to figure out, what do I do with this person? And they're down in Caesarea, about 60 miles from Jerusalem. And Felix is the governor of the area. He works for Nero. He's the Roman leader in the area. And finally, he says to Paul, would you like to go back to Jerusalem? And Paul says, no, and he knows that in Jerusalem they're going to kill him, and he sees Jerusalem as a closed door, right? And then he sees that he has one open door left, which is to go to Rome, to appeal to Nero. Now, if you know your history, you know Nero is crazy. At this point, he's probably not crazy yet. He's thought of as a pretty good leader his first few years. This is about 57, 58 um, AD, somewhere in that range, maybe 59 AD, and Nero uh, reigns until about 67. That's when he starts fiddling as Rome burns. You know the story. And um, so Festus takes over for Felix, and Festus tries to figure out, what am I going to do with this guy? If I just send him off to Rome, I need to have a reason. You can't just go to the Supreme Court without a case, right? And so he he gets ready to send him off wondering what to do, and he decides, I think I will consult with my neighbor, Agrippa. Agrippa is the ruler of the region next to Judea. It's kind of got parts of Galilee in it, and he's northeast, north-northeast of where uh, Festus is ruling. So Agrippa comes over, just like a good neighbor does, right? You go to see your new neighbors, you say hello, you bring them uh, brownies or something, right? You say hello. And so Agrippa shows up to see Festus, and he brings his sister, Bernice. Now, let me just give you the whole historical context. Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. This was Herod who was ruling when Jesus was born. Great-grandson. Again, this is about 60 years later, and uh, Agrippa is part Jewish. He has a sister named Bernice, and Bernice is really... Um, let's just say morally questionable in who she is, like most people were at that time. And Bernice is his sister, and she has previously been married to a couple of kings. And she's now hanging out with her brother. And the rumor is that they're more than just brother, sister, if you know what I mean. Later, she becomes the mystery of Vespasian and Titus, the mistress of Vespasian and Titus. So this is kind of a crazy thing. Here's the Apostle Paul speaking to these two leaders, Festus and Agrippa and his sister Bernice. And Festus has called all the dignitaries from town. It would be like he called all the military leaders, all the government leaders, all the the highest level people for this this basically meeting where Paul is going to give his defense of who he is. So that's the context two governors, governor's sister, a bunch of dignitaries, and they call Paul. And what they really want to do is figure out what is the deal with Paul? What can we accuse him of? He's appealed to Rome. What are we going to tell uh, Nero? We pick it up in uh, Acts 26, verse 4. Paul begins to speak. Paul says this, "'My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews.' They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I'm accused by Jews, O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, let me just kind of unpack this a little bit. Paul's saying this. He's saying, like many of us when we give our testimony, this is who I was before I encountered Jesus. Paul says, listen, I was a good guy. I was the best of the best. I was a member of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, was the, they were the strictest party in all of the Jews. And they were the, the best of the best. They were the best educated. They obeyed the law the best. He says, I was, I was really strict. I was a really Good guy. You know, most people, when you ask them, are they a good person today, what do they say? Oh, yeah, I'm a good person. I may not be the best person, but I'm better than this person. I'm better than that person. Isn't that what they say? I'm a good person. What's your standard? Well, my standard is I'm better than my mom or my dad. I'm better than my neighbor. Paul's saying, I was really good. I was really good. You can ask the Jews. I was really good. I was top-notch he says, I believed in the promise. It's an important word in Scripture. I believed in the promise that was from the Old Testament. Really the first um, best articulation of that promise was the promise God made to Abraham. I will go to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Always remember this. God doesn't call Abraham to be great. He says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Sometimes I think we think, God's given me assignments. I've got to be great at it. Well, God's given the assignment to follow him, and he will make you great, right? He will make you a fisher of men. We're depending on God. We're depending on the shepherd and his skills, not our skills as a sheep, right? Paul says, I believe in the promise, and the promise for Abraham that he would be a great nation. You know what? Abraham never saw that promise fulfilled in his lifetime, and so it says in Hebrews that Abraham and others, they look forward to something that was going to happen. So, All throughout the Old Testament, there is this future view. And this view includes a resurrection. And that's what Paul is saying. I believed in the promise just like the Pharisees do. And then he says, Why is it thought incredible to you, any of you, that God raises the dead? You're acting like this is something so incredible, but this is something that the Jews have believed for a very long time. Why is that thought to be so unusual or so incredible? Verse 9. Paul says, I myself was convinced that I might do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. In raging fury against them, I persecuted with, even into foreign cities. Paul says, I was so good, I was radically good. I was stamping out people who weren't as good. I was stamping out people who were claiming all you needed to do was repent. That's too easy. You know, good people have a really hard time with repentance and grace. Don't they? I mean, it's really hard for someone who feels good about themselves to accept the idea they need to repent. Something we as church people always need to remember. Never, we say this often, never underestimate people's resistance to repentance. I don't need to repent, but I hope you do. Paul says, I stamped them out. I didn't need to repent. I was a good person. I defended the law so much that I was trying to stamp out people who didn't keep the law. I was trying to stamp out followers of Jesus. And then in verse 12, he says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. He says, I even left town. I went to Damascus. That's 150 miles from Jerusalem. And there was no bright line and no 995. There's a journey. 150 miles? Man, if you're on horseback, maybe five days, probably more like six or seven. It's a journey. He says, I went to Damascus to try to stamp out this. Uh, this thing, this, these Jesus followers, but then something happened. Verse thirteen. At midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Jesus himself intervened. Do you remember when Jesus intervened in your life? Do you remember when you had an experience with Jesus? Do you remember when maybe he stopped you? Probably wasn't a bright light, but when he stopped you and said, it's time for you to make a decision about when you encountered him. When he confronted you with the opportunity to receive the gift of salvation. Do you remember that? You may say, well, Steve, I, it, it happens slowly over time. But, but do you remember that feeling of Jesus Christ getting kind of all up in your business and saying, I, I want you to repent of your sin and I want you to receive the gift I paid for, for see, that's something we need to remember and be able to tell about. You see, it's not enough just to say, well, I'm living like Jesus told me to live and I'm living a good life. That's exactly what Paul was doing before he met Jesus. You see, Jesus needs to change my mind about him. It's not something I just affirm and say, ah, oh, I think this is a good way to live. It's a person that I have to respond to personally. It's an invitation. Will you follow me? Do you remember that? That's what Paul's talking about. You see, when we tell people our story, we have to remember how we were before, yet yeah, we thought we were really good people, until Jesus intervened. And he changed our mind about him, and he changed our mind about ourselves. Paul says his name was Saul at the time. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's, Hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what that means? The goads were kind of sharp sticks used to move livestock from place to place. And so you would kind of jab them and push them and cause them to go in a certain direction. And Jesus is saying, Paul, it's hard for you. I'm, I've been trying to move you, and I have been moving you to the place where you can follow me. And you've heard the preaching of Stephen, even right before he was being martyred. You, you know my story, and you've been resistant. Oh, we're all resistant, aren't we? Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Matter of fact, it hurts. It's harmful. You've been trying to not receive this good news, but it's time for you to receive it. You don't need to resist. Verse 15, Paul says, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open, get this, what's Paul's commission? I want you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So we say, Paul, listen, here's your, here's your job. I want you to open eyes so that people can turn. Once they're, because they're, until their eyes are open, they'll never be able to turn. You'll never be able to convince them. Your, eye, your idea is to open their eyes and that they're really under the power of Satan and they'll turn to the power of God. Can you imagine how offensive this could have been? Paul's talking to a half-Jewish king. He's talking to a Roman king. He's talking to a whole bunch of dignitaries who are all Gentiles, and he's telling them, listen, you're under the power of Satan until you turn to the power of Jesus. Do you realize that? If you're rejecting Jesus today, if you're receiving that, if you're rejecting receiving that gift from him, you're under the power of Satan. It's not some benevolent thing. It's not some, well, I'm almost a follower. It's, you're in the power of Satan. Think about that. Are you okay with that? That's why we're so passionate about what we preach. I want you to turn, open their eyes so that they may turn from the power of Satan to the power of Jesus and so that they may receive forgiveness. Have you received forgiveness? Is there anybody guilty here? Have you received forgiveness? And that receiving of forgiveness goes on every time you repent. And if you've been saved by Jesus, you're already forgiven, but your process on a daily basis is to continue to repent every time, every day. I want to repent of my sin. That's what he's opened our eyes to. It's the opposite of trying to make up for what you've done. We've all been there, right? Well, I messed up today. I better do better tomorrow. Jesus said, you messed up today. I forgive you if you repent. When you repent, I want you to live in the reality that I love you that much. I want you to live in the reality that I love you so much, I'm going to forgive you every time you repent. you all have sinned. Everyone in here, the best of us, the most wonderful person in this room sinned this week. And I've asked them to stand. No, I haven't. <laughs> Everybody's going, am I the best? Oh, my gosh, Don't please don't. But it's true. It's true. Walking with Jesus, following Jesus is a life of repentance. And every time we repent, we get further from the sin we fall into. That's Paul's message. Open their eyes. They may turn from darkness to the power of God. Receive forgiveness and a place among those who are sanctified in faith. In other words, I'm giving you a place in heaven. Forgiveness in heaven is what I'm offering you. I love how Paul tells that story. This is what the gospel is. Recognize who I am, open my eyes, turn from darkness to Jesus, be forgiven, receive heaven. That's really what the gospel is. And that's what we're to do. Verse 19 Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I, I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also into the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds, uh, keeping with their repentance. In other words, I did what I was told to do. I carried out this supernatural vision that I got. I was faithful. I went everywhere. I did it. I told people what was going to happen and what they could receive. It's the heart of the good news. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense... Festus, with a loud voice, said, Paul, you were out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Let me tell you this if you tell your Jesus story and people look at you and say, you are crazy, you've probably done a pretty good job. Sometimes we resist this. We're like, well, I don't want to sound crazy, so we kind, of, we kind of, you know, don't tell the whole supernatural thing. We're kind of like, you know, well, I was living this way, and then I figured out I should live that way. That's not a testimony. That's education. Testimony is I had an encounter with Jesus that's supernatural that sounds crazy. Well, don't soft sell what Jesus did. Did you have an encounter with the supernatural Jesus? Did you have an encounter with the Holy Spirit that convicted you of sin that you needed to repent of? Did you have an encounter? Oh, let people know that. They know the rational stuff. They need to see the supernatural stuff. It's all right if they think you're crazy. Matter of fact, you've probably done a pretty good job. Paul says, I'm not crazy. And then he turns to Agrippa and he says this in verse 26. He says, for the king knows about these things and to them I speak boldly for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. He turns to Agrippa and he says, Listen, man, you know what's going on. Jesus wasn't crucified in a corner. He was crucified out in the open. In Jerusalem. Everybody knows. You know about this. This wasn't done in a corner. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? You know the prophets. You know they were looking for a resurrection. Couldn't Jesus be the beginning of that resurrection? And Paul says, I know that you believe. Right at that point, Agrippa's going, man, you're pushing me a little too far. I'm feeling like I'm in one of those rooms where they're trying to sell me a, sell me a timeshare, right? Hopefully you've not experienced that. And don't ever do that. Um, guy's trying to close the deal. What would it take for you to drive this car off a lot today? You know, what would it take? But Paul's just presenting the opportunity But you can feel his heart come under conviction a little bit here. Do you believe? Don't you believe this? I can feel something's going on. Agrippa's starting to go, Man, I'm in front of all these people. Why don't you leave me alone? And Agrippa said to Paul in verse 28 In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? It's like, I don't know what else to say, but in a short time, just with this little bit of information and the, the language there, it could be a short time or it could be a little information. It doesn't matter. It's kind of the same idea. Just, you expect me to be a Christian in just this little bit of encounter that we've had? The King James says it this way, which is not completely accurate, but it's kind of interesting. You probably, if you grew up in church, you've heard this. The King James says, he says, um, Almost thou persuadest me. Almost thou persuadest me. Just this little bit, you expect me to respond. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that only you, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these changes. I want you to have what I have. Well, that's the heart of a disciple, isn't it? I want you to have what I have. I want you to know, Jesus the way I know Jesus. I I want you to know the end of the story the way I know the end of the story. That's all I'm asking. I just want you to have what I have. I'd rather you not be in chains like I am, but you know, that happens sometimes when you're faithful. Um, But I just want you to have what I have. That's what it means when it says to love your neighbors yourself. I want you to know Jesus the way I know Jesus. I want you to have a Jesus story the way I have a Jesus story. I'm not worried about time. I want there to be a sense of urgency because I can't guarantee you tomorrow and I can't guarantee any of us tomorrow either. We don't, we're not guaranteed another breath. But don't use time as a, don't just say I don't know enough or I I needed to delay. If you have legitimate questions, let's spend some time with those. I'd love to chat with you. We have leaders who'd love to talk with you and help you understand what Jesus is doing. Agrippa wants the spotlight to get off of him. I'm not ready. I want you to know here at First Baptist, we don't hurry people. We answer questions. We talk you through. And as long as you're taking steps forward, we'll keep walking with you. Because we're not the ones to convince you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Our job is to continue to open your eyes and interpret what he is doing. I love Paul's story because it talks about what he was Before talks about his encounter with Jesus and what happened and who he was after. Do you have a Jesus story like that? Can you tell that Jesus story? Or maybe as I've been talking, you've been thinking, you know, I don't remember that. I'm not sure there ever was something supernatural. I don't know that I ever really felt like I needed to repent. If that's the case, I don't know if you know Jesus. And I tell you that in love because I want you to know him the way I know him. And I don't know him because I'm a good person. I know him because he loved me and came after me, just like my dad came to see me in Oklahoma. He showed up in the life of a nine-year-old boy said, I want you to be my child. Has that happened to you? Does that happen to you? If it has, I want to challenge you to write your Jesus story so well and to know it so well you can tell it better than any family story because it's more important than a family story. Family stories are great, but you've got to be able to know your Jesus story. The world needs to hear your Jesus story. You say, well, I, you know, what if they don't, I don't know. what the, listen, the response is not your issue. The issue is just to be faithful. It's up to the Holy Spirit to help people respond. Do you know your Jesus story? Do you have a Jesus story? Maybe today you're saying, you know, I did a long time ago, but I haven't lived like that for a while. Listen, he's still Jesus. If you ever received him, you still have him. You just need to get back to him. So, you need to invite him back into your kitchen and have that conversation again and repent of wandering off. Because he's coming after you. He has come after you. And he wants you to be able to tell your story. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, as we're all in this room together thinking about you, Father, would you remind each of us of that first moment, that first encounter when you became real to us. And yes, Lord, I know it's supernatural, and I know for some people, they they struggle with the mysterious. Oh, but Lord, you are so real. And you make yourself so real. Real. God, I pray that everyone who's received that gift of salvation, who has a relationship with you, that right now we would all feel your presence the same way that we felt it on that very first day. Because you are real. You're more real than anything that's ever happened to us. Sometimes we forget, though, Lord. I pray you remind us. God, we're not going to just live our life based on feelings, but we should feel something. We should feel your presence. We should feel it right now. God, for somebody in this room probably is feeling your presence for the very first time. Oh, would you draw them to you and I pray they would repent and say, Jesus, I, I repent of my sins. I've been wrong about how I'm living and I, I need you, Jesus, forgive me. I want to turn from the power of Satan to the power of Jesus, and I want to have a place in heaven. Oh Lord, that's our desire, because you are a great and awesome and powerful God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?